Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. Praise the Lord. Father, that's our heart's desire. We want to praise You. We're accustomed to praising ourselves. We are accustomed to seeking the praise of others. Give us the grace and the wisdom to focus on you and see how better, how much better you are. You are simply superlative. You are literally the very best. So help us acknowledge you as such, learn from you, and follow you in all that your word tells us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. How is everybody? Pumped up? Students, welcome back. It's pretty subdued. Okay. When you're in seminary, they make you take all kinds of tests, some of them uncomfortable. One in particular I remember had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of questions, and what they're trying to do is give you something that is hard. They're trying to give you self-awareness. Self-awareness is the most difficult kind of awareness. Have you noticed? Very easy to see the faults in others. Your brother, your mother-in-law. The kid is next to you in school. It's very, very easy to see what's going on that's wrong in his life and not so, not so easy to see what's going wrong in yours. And one of the many things they had us do to prod us and poke us psychologically and emotionally was they, one game or exercise, I'm not sure exactly how they intended it, was a word association. So I'd like to do a little of that with you this morning. Okay, I'm going to give you three words, and I just want to ask you your gut reaction, how you take these words in. Here's the first, ambition. You have a positive or a negative association with that? Okay. There's good and there's bad. When the first service, it was split right down the middle. I asked, and there was just this muddled sound that came back. Sometimes I, te I check things that I'm trying to learn to teach you on Sunday mornings with someone else on the pastoral team, and I showed this word to a godly young woman on our staff and said, what do you think about this? And I don't remember her exact words, but the idea was it, it makes me uneasy. We had negative associations with it. What about this one? Excellence. That's 100% positive, right? Everybody wants excellence. Well, Next time you catch a flight, what are you hoping for from your pilot? <laughs> you want him to have kind of an average flight? You want him to be excellent. There's an old joke. You know what they call the, the person who graduates at the bottom of medical school? Doctor. And that's all true. He made the grade. But you don't want that guy to work on you if you know that he graduated dead last. If you know that next door in the medical center, there's the guy that graduated 200 out of 200, and next door is his good friend who's first out of 200, who, are you, who do you want operating on you? Number one. It's the strangest thing is you talk to people about their medical situation. I do often as a pastor. I've had literally hundreds, probably thousands of people tell me about their specialist. She's the best. Well, they can't all be the best. How is it that every person I talk to who's having something done is always finding the very best person there is, sometimes in the same town? Remarkable. The reason is we all want excellence. 
nobody likes to lose, right? Now, here in America, we've made a national specialty out of winning. I was listening to a man who was born in England and is now a national, uh, nationalized American citizen talk about this game that we can't get very good at called soccer. <laughs> and he said, you know, in the American psyche, there's this kind of this idea, unless we're going to win, we're probably not even going to play, right? friend of mine, very accomplished athlete, used to say this. You maybe have said it to your kids if you raised athletes. Second place is the first. Is that a terrible, terrible idea? Now, all of God's creation is both glorious and fallen, and I'm going to explain that to you a little bit. But across every culture you can ever experience, no matter how much of a value they put on winning as we do, Everybody wants to succeed. Nobody's hoping for a mediocre marriage. Nobody's hoping that the food they're served is just okay. This comes across in everything. People say to each other, have a great day, right? Anybody ever wished you an average day? <laughs> say, listen, there's seven billion people on earth. I just hope you have the mean of all of those collective <laughs> days, right? Just kind of right in the middle. That's why, by the way, it's one reason I love the city of Fountain Valley. Do you know the city motto? It's a nice place to live. <laughs> so true and so honest. It's not incredible. Nobody's sending postcards back to Iowa from Fountain Valley saying, look where we are. <laughs> Unless you're from Orange County, you maybe not have heard of it, but it is truly a nice place to live. But there's something in the human heart that hungers for excellence. Same reason they don't sell tickets to six-year-old soccer games. <laughs> the kids aren't excellent. Now, the parents go crazy and they cheer, right? Kid kicks the ball and barely hits it and it squirts toward the goal. Everybody cheers. <laughs> Why? Two reasons. They love him. And for a six-year-old, that might be excellent, because last week he was picking dandelions on the left side of the field. <laughs> We're making progress now. But we all love excellence. Here's the third word, contentment. You read the word contentment, what do you think about? Somebody in the first service said, sitting right there, he said, hard. It is hard to be content. There's all kinds of reasons for that, and we'll unpack those this week and in coming weeks. But one reason contentment is so hard is because comparison, as someone wisely observed, is the thief of joy. You're pretty happy in your new Civic until you notice the neighbor just bought a Corvette. <laughs> and rather than being grateful for the Civic and you have a backup camera for the first time in your life, you feel like you're losing. You're a loser because he's got a Corvette and he's got several hundred more horsepower than you even imagined you didn't even know existed. How do we put all this together? See, here's, as we take a break from Luke and return to this alternating series of hard questions, before I even ask the hard questions from you as a congregation, I was asked a very hard question by an executive here in our church who works in a very high-achieving, very high-profile, high-public kind of job. And that is, how do I strive for excellence? I want to advance. I want to succeed. I want to win. I want to earn. I want to get ahead. I want to do better. But how do I do all that, and how can I be content at the same time? You may not have put it in those words, but have you ever felt that tension? Like, I want to get better, I don't want to lose, I don't want to be mediocre, I don't want to be just the average to sub-average worker, friend, employee, husband, student, whatever you are, but how can I strive forward? What do I do with this drive, this desire, whether I act on it or not, whether I prepare and actually work or not, I have this desire to get ahead. How can I do that and be content, which I'm commanded to be in Scripture? Paul told Timothy in one of his letters, he warned him against the pursuit of wealth. And he said that many people striving to be rich had found themselves in all kind of trouble. And Paul said, if the basics are covered with this, we shall be content. 
What do you do with excellence? And how do you practice contentment? These series with these hard questions, as you've noticed, don't come from a particular Scripture. What we're doing now is a sort of theology, a doctrine, if you want, of excellence. And pray for me because it would be incredibly ironic and a terrible, sad failure if a message that mentioned excellence was itself terrible. It's kind of haunted me this week, right? What if I want to talk about excellence and I do it in a terrible way? Won't that be disappointing and sad for everybody, including me? Where does this drive come from? Well, it comes from the kind of passages we just read, Psalm 8, verse 1. These were meant for Israel as corporate worship, so let's read them together. Read this as if you were in the presence of God because you are, and you're taking conscious awareness that He is with you and you are before Him, and read this as worship to Him. Psalm 8, verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. Those last two lines are quite a statement. The glory of God is the radiance of His excellence. That's a way to think about it. His glory is God in all of His magnificence, in His perfection, what shines forward always and eternally from the fact that He's that good, that's His glory. And His glory is above the heavens. Why? Because He made the heavens. Never fails, even if you're not particularly into science, someone will put a documentary on or at least show you these amazing pictures that are coming back from the Hubble telescope. And you see things that look like they were created by a science fiction artist. They're just astonishing, and you're being told this is a real picture. This is part of our universe, and it just completely blows the mind that such a beautiful, magnificent, forbidding place exists. And the psalmist says that the glory of God is above that. And it has to be because He made the heavens. He's uncontainable. He's literally the creator of everything that is. Look at the next psalm, and let's read that together. I just read it aloud. Let's read this verse together. It says, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. And from the very first words of Scripture, Moses wants to explain to Israel and to anyone who would ever pick up the Bible, he wants to give the answer to one of the biggest questions, how did we get here? Where did all this come from? And the story you're told in very simple language, so simple a child could understand it, is that the eternal God who is simply there starts speaking. He's not like you. He's not like me. He doesn't strive and He doesn't sweat. He works, but He doesn't put forth an effort, if you will. He's not tired at the end of the day. His glory, His power, His magnificence is so incredible that He does something that a human being cannot do. He speaks and things spring into existence. And God says, let there be light, and Scripture reports, and there was light, just like God said. And then this amazing phrase, which appears over and over and over again, God is making all that is when He steps down to make man. He makes man in His image an entirely separate order of creation, handcrafted by God, receiving His life from the breath of God. But in all that God makes, God steps back and Moses reports, God saw that it was good. good. You ever do something and step back after pouring your heart into something, step back and look at it and realize that you did a good job? Anything wrong with that? No, not at all. You should. One of the things I've really worked to teach my boys in whatever they're doing, especially if they're cleaning the garage <laughs> or sweeping the driveway, is do your very best, and when you think you're done, walk back about 10 feet and take the whole scene in and see what's missing, see how it all looks. Because if not, you leave the broom out or... The dog gets out or there's a clump of trash somewhere and it just ruins the whole thing. Clean is clean, right? I'm channeling my mother right now. Sorry. I'll, <laughs> I'll come back. 
Why do we desire excellence? For this simple biblical reason, and this is one of the most important ideas in the Bible, we desire excellence because we are made in the image of God. Nothing else in all of God's creation is. That's why the creation story pauses and shows that God makes mankind in a different way. And we're explicitly told that mankind was made, male and female, both, so that both have the glory of God and the inherent worth and dignity of God within them because they're not like the rocks and the plants and the trees. They're not like the animals that Adam names and enjoys and works with. Mankind alone, humankind alone, is made in the image of God. And because we're made in His image, we desire excellence because all that God is and everything He does is excellent. God's never had a B-plus day in His eternal existence. God has never once said, eh, good enough for today. I guess that'll do. I'll try again, do a little better tomorrow. God's never made progress. That's a mind-blowing concept if you think about it for a second. You have, you're proud of it. I lost two pounds the other day and practically danced on the scale. There's about 30 to go, but I'll take two. It was moving in the wrong direction there for a long, long time. God's never made progress. He's never learned. He's never grown. The eternal God, God the Father, is simply excellent, and He made us the crown of His creation in His image, and that's why you have this insatiable drive to win, to enjoy, to have pleasure, to succeed, to be excellent. Don't quench that in your kids. Don't kill their dreams. There's enough people doing that for them already. There's two kinds of people that are wrong in a young person's life. So many of them are telling them that whatever they do, it's wonderful and good enough. And that obviously can't always be true. And there are many others telling them that whatever they do, it'll never be good enough. We want the path of wisdom. We want the path of truth. And one of the biblical truths that we discover is simply this. God never discourages excellence. He always commends it. In fact, he's got a whole book in Scripture of these 66 books. One is the book of Proverbs, which invites you to observe a wise man and a fool. In other words, someone who's rightly related to God and someone who takes no account of God. And one of the hallmarks of the wise man is that what he does, he does well. He may never do anything perfectly, but what he does, he does with excellence. And sometimes Proverbs just makes these flat statements of truth and invites you to take it in and decide what kind of person you want to be. This is written 3,000 years ago, so it has some archaic language. It speaks of kings. But I think it's pretty easy to transfer it into the 21st century. It says this, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Now, Proverbs sometimes just make these statements, and they're a little cryptic and a little dark to invite you to ask yourself, what does that mean, and where do I see that in life, and what am I supposed to do about it? Here's the question. Do you see a man skillful in his work? In other words, do you see someone, man or woman, who's really good at what they do? Here's what tends to happen. People who are really good about what are really good at whatever it is they do, they tend to rise. They tend to come to the attention of the people who are at the top of their field. They tend not to end up working in the backwaters and in the minor leagues. Someone who is skillful stands before kings, not before obscure people. The New Testament makes much more explicit. And this is such an important part of understanding the striving and the desire for excellence. This is Colossians. Paul's writing to a group of ordinary Christians he has never met, and in this part of the letter he's going to get really specific and really practical telling them how to live. And whatever it is that you do, if you're retired or you're a seventh grade student, this applies to you. It says, read it with me. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord 
You will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Here's a little biblical summary of work and hobbies and whatever else that you do. When Paul writes this, he's echoing something from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. In other words, if you're going to be in it, be all in it. Don't show up half-hearted. Don't settle. Don't say, eh, good enough, they won't notice, they won't care, nobody else does any better. No, whatever you do, Paul says in Ecclesi echoing Ecclesiastes, whatever you do, work heartily. Here's some biblical truths about work, whatever your work is, whether it's study, or you're a volunteer and you are in service to others, or you're working in your first job and they're underpaying you because you're gifted, it just has not yet been discovered, the full array of your talents have not yet been discovered by your management, and they're paying you the piddly sum of 10 bucks an hour, and you're going, as one of my kids recently discovered, he worked two hours and then had lunch and spent two hours of work on lunch. I said, Dad, the, the math doesn't work. I said, I know. I'm going to have to do something about that. Cheaper lunch or better job, I don't know, but something's got to give, right? But whether you're making six figures or minimum wage, Paul says, you, whatever you do, work at it heartily. Here's some truths about work. First of all, our work comes from God. Whatever it is that God has given you to do, remember that it comes from Him. Here's a different biblical passage, one of the most important, quiet little truths in the Old Testament. Here's the setting. Moses has led Israel to the promised land. And he's looking across at the land that they're going to inhabit, but he's going to die on the wrong side of the river. At the end of his life, in his old age, he's blown it. He has disrespected God. And God said, you're only going to see it. You're not going all the way in. They're going, but you're not going with them. So in Deuteronomy, which is quite a book if you've never read it, he reviews their entire history. He sums up everything that God told them, and he gives them these promises and these severe warnings about what's about to happen. He's been with them for decades, and he knows what's in their heart. And he gives them this warning, which is so applicable to work. Moses said to them, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. In other words, when you get in the land and you succeed and your fields are flourishing and your house is built and you have prosperity and peace like you've never enjoyed in your life, in that moment you better remember the Lord your God because He is the one that gave you the power to get that wealth. Let me be really practical and really blunt. Hopefully this won't wound anybody by telling you a story about me and my grandma. When I was 13, I was like a lot of 13-year-olds. I was cocky on the outside and terrified on the inside. I was getting bullied, and I was discovering that I was no good at math and science, and that algebra was this devilish language that people had created to torment well-meaning Christian 13-year-old kids who just moved from Mexico, this giant public school in Texas where you had to be from town to ever get along with town. And I was really miserable for a whole solid year. But on the outside, I'd found a few things I was good at. And I was pretty good at the few things that I'd discovered. So the outward projection was, I'm a cool guy and I'm smarter than you are, at least if I get to choose the game. And my grandma, there's two kinds of grandmas. There's grandmas that coddle and grandmas that tell truth. My grandma was a truth teller. And she took the measure of this fronting, pretending, posturing 13-year-old, and here's what she said, just out of nowhere. She's listening to me talk, talk about my greatness, my favorite topic. And she said, you know, Bruce, you could have just as easily been born disabled. Grandma, this must have loved me. 
But I thought about it. And I've thought about it all these years since. She's right. As a pastor, I've dealt with all kinds of people, including people who through absolutely no fault of their own have either been born with or subjected to some massively limiting factor in their lives. And it has nothing to do with them. And my grandma was saying, you cocky little punk. This little articulate thing that you're so proud of, you're clever with words and you can cut people up and you can be very sarcastic. God gave you that ability to talk. You know what? All these years later, I've realized something. I could have been born with those limitations and I could still have them. I'm one blood clot, one brain event, one car accident away from having everything that I've enjoyed severely limited or taken away altogether. That's what Moses is driving at. When you get to the promised land and enjoy all the promises, you shall, it's a commandment, you shall remember the Lord your God. Remember Him because He is the one who gives you power to get wealth. Have you earned? Have you owned? Have you succeeded? Congratulations and praise the Lord. In all of your success, remember the Lord your God because He is the one who gave you the ability to get that in the first place. You haven't done anything, including taking a single breath in your life apart from His goodness and from His grace. So our work comes, first of all, from Him. But Colossians says something Equally important, our work is done not only from Him, but for Him. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This is so important because it has the capacity of transforming your very ordinary job that you don't particularly like and make it a holy endeavor. Because you're going in to work for a boss that's not that great. Don't raise your hand because it might get back to him or her. But how many of you have bosses that aren't that great? Okay, I said don't raise your hand and here we are. (laughs) Good thing the camera doesn't point back that way, huh? I bet if you talk to people, I'd say at least probably half of all Americans say that they wish their boss were different. How do you redeem that? How do you pursue excellence in that? What if they take credit for your work? What if they don't reward your work? What if they don't compensate you? What if they don't pay you the way you deserve? What if they never encourage, only point out the faults, and never praise you or even thank you for all of your successes? Whatever you do, work heartily because, Paul says, you're doing it as for the Lord and not for men. People who work merely for other human beings aren't even popular in an office. We call them suck-ups. And this is the guy, this is the gal that only works when the boss comes around and suddenly there's energy and innovation and yes sir and no sir and yes ma'am and no ma'am and we're just humming and then they turn the corner and boom, the system shuts right back down. Paul says you don't do that in whatever work you have, you are doing it as for the Lord, not for men. And most importantly, our work can be rewarded beyond this life. The ordinary humdrum, underpaid grind that you may find yourself in, Paul invites you to look forward into eternity where God is, and he tells you this. He's told you to work for the Lord and not for men, and here's why. Read it with me. It says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. What kind of difference would it make when you show up to your shop, your office, your store, your classroom, whatever your little arena is? What difference would it make if you consciously, prayerfully thought, I'm going to work for Jesus today? Nobody may care. Nobody may thank me. I may be unrewarded and underpaid in this life, but it's okay. I have hope and great confidence for the future because I'm not just working for them. I'm working for the Lord. If you do that, there will be excellence in your work. 
And see, here's what's really radical about this passage. We're reading from the book of Colossians in chapter 3, where Paul has turned to practical advice from people in all different areas of life, parents and children, workers and bosses. And do you know in his original context in the first century who he's writing this to? Slaves. See, the first century economic system was built on the back the very fabric of society was slavery. And it wasn't as brutal as what and barbaric and inhumane as American slavery would become before the Civil War, but it was slavery. You belong to another. Your prospects were about this wide unless you could somehow purchase your freedom or someone purchased it for you. Now, wherever the gospel was preached, wherever Jesus has been followed, in large numbers, something has always happened. His slavery has been fought and destroyed because Christ brings liberty and freedom. But in these initial days of the gospel just beginning to sink into these societies, Paul is telling both slaves and their owners, now you both belong to Christ. Here's how you are to work and here's how you are to relate to one another. And if it is true that a first century slave can work as if he worked for Jesus, knowing that his work came from Jesus and Jesus loves him no less because he has been thrust in this unfortunate position and he will never be rewarded as a human being deserves to in this life, but it's okay because something much greater awaits him in the next life. How much more can you and I take American liberty and freedom and use our God-given desire to excel and to succeed and to win and use every single day to bring honor and glory to God? Students, a lot of you need encouragement to give up your small visions because you have ambitions but they're way too small. They're way too earthly. See, here's the biblical truth about ambition. Ambition is not wrong, but it's easy to be ambitious for the wrong things and for the wrong reasons. Our English word ambition only appears five times in this translation of our English Bible. Four times it's negative. And a Greek word is used that is translated selfish ambition. Only once is it positive. Paul said he made it his ambition to preach Jesus where people had never heard about him. That's his ambition. That's his drive. That's what he's striving for. He's going straight through prisons and beatings and rejection all the way to shores that have never heard of Christ. Why is he doing that? Because he has a drive to do a good thing, and the drive is God-given, but because of the effect of sin in the world, ambition will always be with you because you're made in the image of a striving, excellent, perfect God, but because of sin… It's so easy to be ambitious for the wrong things or sometimes for the right things for the wrong reasons. Maybe you have a very simple example that a lot of families are living through in Orange County. You ever seen a parent push their child and basically ruin their relationship with them because they demanded such academic excellence from the kid? A lot of times, if we're very honest with ourselves, what parents are concerned about Here's the presenting thing. I want my child to succeed. I want them to have a good job. I want them to do better than I've done. Wonderful. But since self-awareness is so difficult, if you dig down a little bit deeper, what really happened is that mom, that dad's best friends, their kids got into UCLA and Berkeley and Yale. And it looks like Johnny's on his way to OCC where the admission rate is 100%. And it's going to be a little tough at the party to say that, you know, the neighbor kid's studying abroad in Italy, and Johnny's just driving back and forth to an ordinary college that any Californian can go to. That ambition is shot through with pride. What do you do with a thing like that? You recognize that your drive and your ambition comes from God, but sin has a real effect on you. 
and you lay your ambitions before God and you say to Jesus, show me the truth about myself. I'm striving for good things, I hope. I want to be ambitious for the right things, but it's not enough to be ambitious for the right things. You want to be ambitious for the right things for the right reasons, and only Jesus can give you that kind of insight. Listen to Philippians chapter 2. Paul says in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, nothing that you do puts you ahead of everyone else for you to be served and for you to get the glory. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Here's the hard part. Here's the it takes Jesus part. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I don't even know how to do that. I mean, I think I'm pretty significant. How do I make sure that I am counting in my attitude, I'm looking at other people as more significant than myself? The next sentence explains it. Here's what that looks like on the street level. Here's what it looks like in actual practice. Read it with me. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See how practical and real the Bible is? The Bible says don't worry about your, it doesn't say don't worry about your own interests. No, you have to look out for your own interests. If you don't look out for your own interests, you'll be naked and hungry. You've got to clothe yourself. You have to work. When you become an adult, the Bible says that you have to provide for your family. If you refuse to provide for your family, Paul says you're actually denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. You have to look out for your interests, but it's not only your own interests, but also the interests of others. In other words, your whole life is not a song and a story and an epic poem dedicated to the glory of you. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You are walking humbly, seeking the glory of God and the good of others. Here's another very practical example further down in Philippians. Paul says to this church whom he loved, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Here's the brutal reality of Christianity in the first century. Check this out. If you thought that all first century Christians were great. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Read the last verse with me. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Let me remind you what we're reading. Paul's in prison, thinking about all the people he's brought to faith in Christ, all the people he's invested in, all the people that are available to him at that moment to go help this poor church. And he says, I hope in Christ, I hope in the Lord Jesus I can send Timothy because there's nobody in the world like him. Because here's the problem. He's the only one that's actually going to care about you. Everybody else around me is continually seeking their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Can you put those two verses together? Paul says, look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And when you put the interests of others at heart, you will be seeking the interests of Jesus Christ. It's the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. What does that look like? That is the very definition of godly ambition. Here's the summary in 2 Corinthians 5.9. If you want a single-sentence summary of what it means to live ambitiously with drive, with passion, to win, to succeed, to advance, here's what purifies and filters and makes it good and acceptable to God. One sentence, read it. We make it our aim to please Him in what? Everything. Yeah, the way you play board games. You want to please Him. We used to play a board game together called Catan. Anybody familiar? We stopped playing because we were ruining relationships. <laughs> we weren't mature enough at that time to play it in a way that pleased God people were getting mean. Well, if you make it your aim to please, him, to please Him, life is not only a banquet, it's an adventure. Because you've been given hobbies and interests. You've been given work and friendships. 
You've been given a whole network of people, sometimes that you're related to by blood, sometimes that you're related to only by mutual concern and by love, and in all the things that God has given you to do, if you make it your daily ambition, your daily drive and passion to be pleasing to Him, you will have a wonderful life. And if that's the striving, if that's the goal, how can you do all that and be content? Let me tell you in a few minutes, and we'll talk in weeks to come about how to practice and learn contentment as Paul said he needed to. And what, I've, what comes next, I've tried to pull from all over the Bible everything I've read from Scripture about contentment, everything I've learned about it primarily by failing at it. Here's how I define contentment biblically. Contentment is the satisfaction that we enjoy by doing our best. You have to do your best. If you don't do your best, even if you win, it's hollow. Because you know you were just matched with easy circumstances or bad competition. You win, but there's no real joy in it. There is a God-glorifying joy in doing your very best whether you win or not. Even George Patton, the famously demanding general, knew that. Blood and guts Patton said, when a man has done his best, what else is there? And that's exactly right. If you've done your very best with your limited potential, your limited intelligence, your small resources, but if you've done your best, you can begin to be satisfied there. It's the satisfaction we enjoy by doing our best to achieve something God wants. If you have evil, selfish aims in mind, you'll never be content because God won't bless that and God is not in that. What is it that God wants you to do? A million different things in your life. If you've got one of those ordinary starter jobs and they're paying you the measly amount of $10 an hour because your true genius has not yet been discovered, be awesome at it. If your job is, as mine once was, to stack light bulbs, make that display look amazing. Make your manager say, we've never had anybody that cared that much about sweeping this porch. Say, hey, the broom's kind of worn out. I can't sweep as well as I'd like to. You'll impress them. I keep hearing from, I mean, top, top, top people that I listen to on podcasts. The only thing you have to do to excel at this point in our culture is to be above average. Just try a little bit harder. Everybody's giving 50. You give 60. You'll completely knock their socks off. Doing the best that you have to achieve something God wants using what He has provided. All you can give back to your work, all you can give back to your drive is what God gave you. Here's an example. I was a pretty mediocre football player. I would not have started for Edison or probably for any other high school in Huntington Beach. In the first service, sitting right there, was a guy who played in the NFL. Now, does that mean because I wasn't gifted in the genetic sorting, God just made him out of very visibly different stuff than he made me out of? Apparently, he has at least two boxes, the stuff to make Johnny and the stuff to make Bruce, okay? And he just made Johnny out of better materials physically than he made me. Does that mean I shouldn't play? I shouldn't try? I shouldn't enjoy? No, I should use everything that God has provided. This is what makes all of life filled with godly meaning because it doesn't matter if you're 12 or 90. If your health is failing and you can't do what you once did, you can do the best with what you have now. And in all of this, you know all along that the outcome and the glory belong to God. And this is the real secret. You've done your best to do something that God wants you to do using to the best of your ability what God has given you. He didn't give it to somebody else. He gave it to you. He may have given them more or less, but you are only responsible for what God gave you. And if you do your best with that, and you strive, and if you fall, you fall facing forward, then you can rest because you know that the outcome and the glory belong to God and not to you. In other words, promotion comes from the Lord. And whatever happens in life, you can rest contented knowing that you have 
worked and done your best in a difficult situation to bring glory to Him. Here's what I call the contentment questions. There's just two. Did I do my best with what God gave me? Others have more opportunities. Others have more talent. Things just come to them more easily. In almost area, in every area of my life, everything I've ever done or tried, I can introduce you to 10 people who are better. I had the privilege over the last few years of making a good friendship with someone who's literally, I did the math on his chosen profession, he's literally a top seven percenter. And here's what he said at the end of a very illustrious career, there's always someone better. You learn through failure. That's a godly perspective. The contentment question is, did I do my best with what God gave me? And the harder question, which we'll explore in weeks to come, can I be satisfied with God's provision and presence even if I do not receive what I wanted? I did my very best in a worthy endeavor of something that God wants. I gave it my all, and it didn't work out. I didn't make the team. I didn't make the cut. I didn't get the job. They turned me down for the raise. And the question then becomes, in the presence of this Jesus that you serve, is Him being there with you and His continued promise to take care of you, is that enough for you or did you need for someone else to tell you that you're good enough? That's contentment. Listen to Paul explain it in Philippians 4. Paul's in prison and he's literally been starving. It's important for you to know that. That's the context. Paul has no one to care for him in this prison. Prisons in the ancient world, as they sometimes do in the third world, depend on the kindness of people on the outside of prison to keep the prisoners alive. Paul has literally been starving, likely dressed in rags because nobody cares about this rogue heretic for Jesus. And finally, another offering arrives from the church at Philippi, which is the only church that had the wisdom to help him financially. And here's what he said. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, watch this, for I have learned. In other words, this wasn't natural to me. I didn't always have this. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You know how many times that verse is quoted out of context? Usually at the end of the Super Bowl. Some Superman walks off the field covered in sweat. Some other Superman is lying on the field crying and defeated. And the guy that wins said, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Good. It's good for you to give him credit because you could be crippled tomorrow. But the original verse that's so easily quoted is something way bigger than athletic, academic, or business success. Paul says, I know how to starve and I know how to have a belly full of food. I know how to be rich and I know how to be desperately poor and be satisfied in those conditions. Why? Because I can do all of that. I can live at peace. I can live in satisfaction even as they starve me because Jesus, who will never fail me, is with me and strengthens me. If I can be really real with you, in every disappointment, frustration, harsh language for myself, because usually you speak more harshly to yourself than you ever would to anybody else in the world, the reason I'm so upset is because I didn't get my way. I thought my efforts should have been better received. I thought we'd be further ahead by now. I thought things would be better. I thought I'd worked hard enough. I thought I'd done enough. I thought I'd been good enough for things to be the way I wanted them to be. So the contentment question is, you strive, you don't spare any effort, you give yourself to a holy good thing that God wants you to do. If you don't get what you wanted, will the presence of Jesus be enough for you? Paul says from a prison, it is. I can do all things who strengthens me.
At the end of the 1600s, an ordinary man was born in England. His health was not good enough to study what he wanted, so he made himself an apprentice to a cobbler. In other words, he was an apprentice shoemaker. But then feeling the call to ministry, he read across Scripture and became very concerned that Christians in England were content to praise Christ while millions of people on the other side of the world who had never heard of him died and lost themselves in hell. So he wrote a book asking, shouldn't we do better? Shouldn't we care about people who have never heard about Christ? For his trouble, the young man was told literally to sit down and shut up. But he went anyway. His name was William Carey. After his incredible career that has literally marked India, you can find Carey's name all across that great big country. Carey said, here's the secret, I can plod, he said. I can continue with perseverance in any definite pursuit. In other words, if I set something ahead of myself, I can keep walking toward it. By the time he was done, after 41 years in India without a furlough, things, terrible things like infant sacrifice and widow burning were abolished in India. A degree-granting institution, which some people believe to be one of the first in that part of the world existed, it exists today and serves 2,500 students. The scriptures had been translated in their entirety in the major languages of India and in many hundreds of languages besides. Who did that? A shoemaker did that. And here's the motto of his life. Here's how he summed it up. He said, expect great things from God. Why? Because God is great. He's the one who speaks the world into existence. He's the one that makes this amazing universe and steps back and sees that it's good. So you, if you know him, if you love him, if he loves you, you should expect great things from him and you should attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That's why I'm telling you, young people, give up your small ambitions. You serve a great God. Don't waste your life on small things. And retirees, your life counts for so much. You could do the greatest blessing and fill heaven more and great, bring more honor and glory to God now that you're not getting paid for your work than perhaps you ever did when they loved you around the office and you were a corporate hotshot. Career strivers who are continually disappointed because it feels like somebody else is always getting the breaks. Very successful people who have discovered that getting one more dollar never seems quite satisfactory. Give your goals to God, expect great things from Him, and attempt great things for Him. Let's pray. Lord, would you change our thinking from the inside out? There are, on this Sunday alone, there are people who are involved together, Lord, we're involved in giving ourselves to literally thousands of things. Would you teach us to pursue excellence in them, do our best with them, and leave the results and give our contentment to you? Lord, this offering that we give, you've commanded us in Scripture to be excellent givers, to excel, you say, in the grace of giving. Help us not to be satisfied, Lord, with being mediocre and settling with anything. Help us to do everything we do with all of our strength, the strength you've given us. And receive this offering and receive this praise as we offer it to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.